Well, greetings in Christ's name. Uh, Dr. Askell stole some of my thunder in the last hour. I don't know. You, you invite a guy to come and talk on a topic, and then you take away what he's going to say. Thanks a lot. That's why you preach first. Yeah, you're the host. But, but I think that I'll reinforce some of the things that you just said, brother, so I hope that that's uh, of encouragement to all of you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us help, give us grace, give us wisdom to think according to your word and to honor your holy name. We pray that we would love your law and love your gospel and live in the light of both. In Jesus' name, amen. While his name may not be well known today, perhaps the most prominent Presbyterian Puritan of his own era was a man named Stephen Marshall. Uh, we're talking about the 1640s in London. I, when I teach my course on Puritanism, I say he was to London in the 1640s what R.C. Sproul was to us. Very popular preacher, well-regarded, people stopped to listen to him. In 1644, he published, this is one of those Puritan-type titles, so let me take a breath before I, uh, I read it to you. He published a sermon of the baptizing of infants preached in the Abbey Church at Westminster at the morning lecture appointed by the Honorable House of Commons. This was a part of his task as a member of the Assembly of Divines meeting at Westminster. And the sermon is an intriguing diatribe full of misinformation and innuendo aimed at casting as much mud as possible against what he called the Anabaptists of England. In opening up the dangers of their opinions, Marshall says this, I quote, First, I see that all who reject the baptizing of infants do and must, upon the same ground, reject the religious observation of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath, namely because there is not, say they, an express institution or command in the New Testament. Verily, I have hardly either known or read or heard of any who hath rejected this of infants, but with it they reject that of the Lord's Day. You see, for Marshall, there's an inevitable relationship between rejecting pedobaptism and rejecting the observance of the first day of the week. So far as he was concerned, the rejection of the one, infant baptism, required the rejection of the other. But we must ask, how did his opponents respond to the point that Stephen Marshall made? Well, there are two very important men who make direct reference to his statements. Their names are Christopher Blackwood and John Toombs. Both of them were trained at British universities, and interestingly, they refuted Marshall in exactly the same fashion. Now, let me, let me tell you what they did. Christopher Blackwood is a well-known particular Baptist who served churches in Ireland and then in the county of Kent in the southwest of England. And in the same year that Marshall published, Blackwood published a book called The Storming of Antichrist, and he answers Marshall's criticisms point by point. Here are his words. He's, He's quoting Marshall first. He says, There are three great mischiefs that go along with denying infants' baptism as first, They reject the observation of the Lord's Day. Here's uh, Blackwood's answer. We deny it, 
and the generality of those that are against infants' baptism receive it, that is, receive the obligation of keeping the first day of the week, observe it with as due observation as those that accuse them indeed, he's saying, the people that I know, the particular Baptists, keep it in the same way that you Presbyterians do. For the Jewish, for the Jewish Sabbath, overcommanded by God, is put to an end, Colossians 2.16, else it stands in force yet. And that being put to an end, we observe the Lord's Day from the Apostles' example and the morality of the fourth commandment, which requires one day in seven. Blackwood's denial of Marshall's objection is direct and to the point. He argues that the generality of the Baptists observe the Lord's Day, basing their observance on two key factors, namely the example of the Apostles and even more interesting for us as we'll go along, the morality of the fourth commandment. The other who responded to Stephen Marshall was John Toombs, a very important Anglican anti-pedo-baptist. Um, all of the defenses of believers' baptism written in the 17th century in one way or another rely upon John Toombs' arguments. He's the most important defender of believers' baptism in that century. In his an examine of the sermon of Mr. Stephen Marshall about infant baptism, Toombs addresses the Presbyterians' comments about the Sabbath and the Baptists at great length under this heading. The anti-Pedobaptist principle overthrows not the Lord's Day. The Pedobaptist principle reduceth Judaism and popish ceremonies and adds to the gospel. Oh, he's not too happy here. Marshall had asserted that the Baptists do and must reject the Sabbath. Toombs is indignant in his reply. You know, sometimes these 17th century guys could be sarcastic and caustic and abrasive. Uh, I've got a quotation from John Owen that I use when I talk about justification, where he goes after an Arminian with the most ironic, caustic, abrasive, sarcastic language. Most of it done in Latin, so it sounds elegant. To insult somebody in Latin is a nice way to do it, but it's still an insult, right? Well, anyways, what does Toombs do here? Writing to Marshall, you say, and he quotes Marshall, I see that all that reject the baptizing of infants do and must upon the same grounds reject the religious observation of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath, namely, because there is not, say they, an express institution or command in the New Testament. That's exactly what Blackwood had cited. Same words. Here's Toombs. Give me leave to take up the words of him in the poet, what a word hath gotten out of the hedge of your teeth. They do, they must. Though I doubt not of your will, yet I see you lack some skill in pleading for the Lord's Day. Imagine accusing R.C. Sproul of lacking skill in pleading for anything. That's sort of, sort of what Toombs is doing here to Marshall. You lack some skill in pleading for the Lord's Day that others have the truth in, that is neither so nor so, they neither do nor must reject upon the same ground the Lord's day, that they do not, I can speak for one, nor must they, and to make that good, let us consider their ground as you mention it. Now, Toombs is about to talk about the Baptists and how the Baptists make a distinction between baptism and the Lord's day. Okay, that, that, This is the essence of his argument, and this is where I'm going in this whole lecture. Uh, back to Toombs. Um, this then is their principle, I'm sorry, but give me leave to tell you that you leave out two explications that are needful to be taken in. First, that when they say so, that is that something lacks uh, a command in the New Testament, when they say so, 
they mean it of positive instituted worship consisting in outward rites such as circumcision, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are, which have nothing moral or natural in them, but are in whole and in part ceremonial. For that which is natural or moral in worship, they allow an institution or command in the Old Testament as obligatory to Christians, and such do they conceive a Sabbath to be as being of the law of nature, that outward worship being due to God, days are due uh, to God to that end, and therefore even in paradise, that is in Eden, appointed from the creation, and in all nations, in all ages observed, enough to prove so much to be of the law of nature, and therefore the fourth commandment justly put among the morals. It's moral law. Now circumcision hath nothing moral in it. It is merely positive, neither from the beginning, nor observed by all nations in all ages, nor in the Decalogue, and therefore a Sabbath may stand, though circumcision may fall. Now, do you see what Blackwood and Tombs both do in this case? They argue that Stephen Marshall has failed to consider a well-established hermeneutical principle, and in failing to do so, has drawn faulty conclusions. Baptism, circumcision, the Lord's Supper, are not in the same category of law, as the Lord's Day Sabbath. Baptism, circumcision, Lord's Supper, and others are positive laws, plus laws, added laws, which are tied to a particular historical covenant. What they're saying is, in line with a a long tradition in Christian interpretation, not all laws in the Bible are created equal, and we have to be careful to make distinctions about them. The Sabbath is a moral law. It was revealed to Adam at creation, and it is written on the hearts of all people as they are image bearers. Baptism is a positive law that is revealed only in the new covenant, and thus is obliged in the new covenant. It requires a command under the new covenant. You see, they're arguing that Marshall was guilty of the fallacy of category error, of failing to make this distinction. And Blackwood and Tombs called him out on this. You know, sitting at my study thinking about this, I wonder how he took their critique, because he ought to have known better. This is a well-established principle. Now, this debate over infant baptism and the Sabbath is a helpful introduction to our study today, because it illustrates a very important perspective on law and gospel as it was understood in the post-Reformation era. And this is the distinction between two kinds of law that are revealed in Scripture, what traditionally has been called moral law and positive law. And this distinction is essential to an understanding of the doctrine as it is taught in the Second London Confession of Faith. Let me give you some definitions. Moral law is also sometimes called natural law. And moral law refers to the law that was written on Adam's heart as part of his image-bearing. Moral law is general revelation. It's available to all people at all times, and ultimately it serves as the basis for their judgment before God and their condemnation as sinners. They are condemned because they have broken the moral law. The standard is the same for all people at all time, and it is written on all hearts. The two great commandments are summaries of the Ten Commandments, which are the essence of the moral law. But the other category, positive law, 
especially when considered in religious or theological matters, depends not on general revelation, but on special revelation, and it is tied to a specific historical covenant. So that circumcision and baptism and dietary restrictions are positive laws. Prior to their revelation, they are unknown and have no obligation. How old was Abram in Genesis 17 when God came to him and told him to be circumcised and to circumcise all of his household? He was 99 years old. That's what Genesis 17.1 says. Does that mean that for the 99 years of his life prior, Abram was sinning because he hadn't been circumcised? No, not at all. It hadn't been revealed to him yet. It was when it was revealed by God as a command that then Abram was obliged to obey this commandment of God. Prior to their revelation, they're unknown and have no obligation. They may be annulled or terminated by divine will when a covenant changes. That's exactly the point of Hebrews 7.12, which says, for the priesthood being changed, the Levitical priesthood is gone, Now we have Christ who serves us according to the order of Melchizedek. For the priesthood being changed, the old covenant being uh, annulled, of necessity there is also a change of law. What is the change of law? The change of law is the positive law, the laws that are revealed under the new covenant. The obligation that we had to the old covenant laws is gone because the old covenant is gone, its priesthood is gone, But now the new covenant has come, and we are obliged to certain positive laws of the new covenant. In that discussion, the positive law to which we are subject is believer's baptism, you see. It belongs to the new covenant, not the old. The Old Testament positive laws were canceled when Christ the high priest offered himself. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and he was never baptized. Neither of these factors violate positive laws, and so you may eat bacon to the glory of God. That's what it comes down to in many ways. I mean, that sounds ridiculous to say that's what it comes down to. But you can do that. Um, Have some good pork ribs, put some sauce on them, enjoy them, and glorify God in doing so. A proper study of confessions must consider the theological soil out of which they grow. Every creed has a context. And for the orthodox confessions, it is the entire history of the church preceding the document. A good confession uses language and theological concepts that have been carefully defined by the best theologians and adopted widely across the spectrum of Christians. The shape and color of the flowers and the nourishing benefits of the harvest all depend on their lineage. Like heirloom vegetables, orthodox creeds have been nurtured for centuries and they yield a wholesome and healthy crop. And our Puritan confessions are just like this whether it's the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Congregational Savoy Declaration of 1658 or the Second London Confession, they all rely on long-employed technical terms, familiar phraseology, and careful distinctions. They are the fruit of more than 1,300 years of creedal theology. Every careful study of these documents must take this historical theology into account in order to render a proper interpretation of the text. Without doing so, we will simply have postmodern comments on the confession, devoid of any real usefulness. Oh, what does it mean to me? No, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is, what did they intend, and how does it fit into the flow of Christian theology? You see, if we're to study law and gospel in the Second London Confession, 
we must understand some precise terminology and observe certain careful distinctions. These documents, Westminster Savoy, 2nd London, reflect the consensus of the post-Reformation churches, and they use language that would have been immediately familiar and recognized by all. They wrote this so that people would understand it. It was especially important for the Congregationalists and the Baptists to do this, for by 1658 and 1677, they were battling both a growing antinomianism on the left-wing fringe of English descent, as well as a serious deviation from the doctrine of justification spearheaded by no one less than the mainstream Richard Baxter. Careful definition for law and gospel was essential to the proclamation of the good news about Christ and for the spiritual health of the people in their churches. Now, before we turn to the confession, I want to turn to the scriptures and show you how a distinction is made. But I want to do something special, okay, before you open up your Bibles. Remember last night when Pastor Johnson told us the illustration about the grass and how nice the grass looked and how pleasant it was, and you don't even think about walking on it until there's a sign that says, don't walk on the grass? Okay. Don't take out your ESV Bibles. Okay. The ESV is a fine translation. I like the ESV. I've used the ESV. I preach from the ESV. But in the text that I want to look at, the ESV obscures what Paul says. I, I kind of would illustrate it like this. In February, I had cataract surgery. My right eye was really bad. My left eye was getting bad. And it was like looking at the world through a dirty uh, window, a window that hadn't been cleaned for a long time. What I saw was true, but I couldn't see the details because my vision was obscured. Well, I think the ESV translation of 1 Corinthians 7.19 does that. It's true. It's right, but it obscures some of the details in the background. So if you have a New King James Version or an authorized version, I didn't look it up in the NASB. I don't know how it translates it. Or if you just want to listen to the way that I'm working through this, do that. But please don't look at your ESV right now. It'll only be confusing. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll read verses uh, 17 through 24 but our attention will be focused on verse 19. This is the word of God. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Here's the verse we need to look at. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.19 is a very important text which demonstrates a key theological distinction that is rooted in Scripture. Dr. Askell made this distinction from Romans 2 in the previous session. I want to take a little bit more time and show it to you from 1 Corinthians 7.19. And what we have here is the fundamental distinction between moral law and positive law, which is at the basis of what the Reformed confessions do in their treatment of law. 
it helps us to understand that we cannot and we must not treat all forms of law as if they are the same. Now, here's the text. Let me give you the, the NKJV translation is good if you have something like that. If you don't, listen, listen to the way that I would translate it. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But obedience to the commands of God, dot, dot, dot. Let's work through this, all right? I want you to imagine in your mind sort of a, um, a chart. Try to put this into a chart. And I want you to think of this chart in, a ser- in terms of a series of parallel lines. So it'll go like this. Circumcision is nothing. And, first line, circumcision is nothing. Second line, and. Third line, uncircumcision is nothing. Now, do you see the parallels there? That's exactly how it's phrased in the Greek. Hey, peritome, uden, estin, kai. Hey, acrobustia, uden, estin. You hear the uden, estin there? It's nothing. Literally, that's what it means. So Paul has two parallel lines. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Here's a Jewish man, trained in the best rabbinical school in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, committed to destroying the church if he's able to do so. And he comes to faith in Christ, and the commitment of his whole life is turned over. Circumcision epitomized what Paul was all about. And now he says, it's nothing. And uncircumcision, being a Gentile, is nothing. And then what Paul does, so we have three lines. The fourth line is but. Now, in the Greek language, there are a couple of different ways that you can say but. Paul uses the strongest word possible here. It's the, it's the word Allah. Sometimes when a word for but is used, it means something that's similar, but perhaps is adding some more information. But usually when Allah is used, the writer is saying, we're going in a new and a different direction here. Okay? And that's what Paul is doing. He's making a strong contrast. We have these two things that are nothing. Then we have a, a word that tells us there's a big contrast coming on. And then we have three more words. Now, one of the problems with the last line is that Paul uses a Greek word for which we don't have an exact equivalent in English. And when we read it in English, uh, I think here in the NKJV, uh, circumcision is nothing, but uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commands of God, it sounds like a verb, doesn't it? Because keeping is a participle, it's a verbal noun. But actually, there's no verb at all in this last line in Paul's thinking. The word teresis, I've worked hard to try to come up with an English word to translate it, that doesn't have the overtones of a verb. And I I, I can't think of any. The best that I could come up with within the semantic range is obedience. Okay, so the way that Paul ends this, this sentence, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to the commands of God. And then it ends. Now there's a contrast there. Do, do, Do you see a problem? Or do you see an intention of Paul? He uses a statement that's called an ellipsis, meaning he doesn't have to state the rest of what he intends to say because it's obvious. There's a contrast. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to the commands of God, what would you fill in? What's the opposite of nothing? Everything. 
everything. That's exactly right. And that's largely what these uh, translations seek to do. Uh, NKJV, what, keeping the commandments of God is what matters. It's everything. So this remarkable statement, Gordon Fee in his commentary in 1 Corinthians calls this one of the more remarkable statements that Paul ever made. Here in this, contra, in this context, he's describing to us a contrast between commands that were given in the Old Testament. What happened to a Jewish family if the father refused to circumcise his sons? They were cut off from the nation. They couldn't be part of the religious life. It was a commandment that was necessary to be obeyed. And yet Paul says, it's nothing. But there are still entolon thau, commandments of God that are to be kept. Now, it's really interesting to work on the word entolon, commandments. Uh, Fee says this, Paul tends to use this word ordinarily to refer to the individual commandments. For example, in Romans 7, 8 through 13, where the individual commandment is distinguished from the whole law, and in Romans 13, 9. And of course, the commandments, if we look at Romans 7 and Romans 13, we find the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And then in Romans 13, we find them in this order, 7, 6, 8, 9, 10. When Paul speaks, when he uses the same word to speak about the commandments of God. You see, Paul is saying that there is a distinction to be understood between what theologians have called positive laws, that is, laws that are added, they're plus laws, they depend upon special revelation, and the commandments of God, which are the moral law, and are written upon the heart. Whether you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised under the new covenant makes no difference. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about your commitment to the Mosaic covenant. It's not about that at all. What matters, though, is that you keep the commandments of God, that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. This is a very clear contrast between this point. And so here you see we have another example to follow up with what our brother said earlier. We have another example in Scripture of a distinction that is made between law and law. Pardon me. We have law that is permanent. We have law that's in general revelation. We have law that's binding. We have law that is a transcript of the righteousness of God. We have law that is the means of condemnation for all who don't have faith in Christ. And on the other hand, we have law that refers to a specific historical covenant, whether it's old covenant, circumcision, dietary laws, civil laws, judicial laws. All of those are positive laws for Israel in the land, but they're gone. And now we have positive laws, and the best example of those positive laws are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you understand this distinction. I hope you see it here in 1 Corinthians 7.19 because it's a very important distinction that we need to make. Now, having said that, let's turn to the Confession of Faith and think through some of its chapters because this distinction is at the root of what it teaches us about law and ultimately about gospel as well. Now, there's a lot in the Confession about law. If you do a simple search, you'll find more than 50 times that the word law in one of its forms appears in the Confession of Faith. Um, it, it, we simply can't take the time to look at every reference. So what I want to do is just do a quick survey over some of the places where it appears. And I want to start in chapter 4 of creation. Law has to do with this world. What do we read in chapter 4? 
Well, we read this. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, in all very good. A general statement about God as the creator and his action in creating. Uh, One of the ways that you need to approach the confession of faith is almost always in the 32 chapters, the first paragraph of the chapter gives you the general, the basic doctrine, and the following paragraphs open up different aspects of it. So we, we have the basic doctrine here in paragraph one that God is the creator and he made all things by his power and it was all very good. But then we have some specifics that are given to us. Paragraph 2. After God made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Now, if we were having a quiz, I would ask you, what kind of law is this describing right here? And your answer would be moral law. Okay, that's very clearly what is being taught us here. We have to be careful not to make the word concept fallacy. And that is, if a term isn't present, the idea isn't present. Well, moral law is not stated here. We don't find that term but the concept is clearly taught in paragraph 2 of chapter 4. So God makes Adam and Eve, and he writes upon their hearts the moral law of God, the law of God, so that the image of God, the righteousness, knowledge, and true holiness is defined in terms of what God did in making them into his image, writing their law on their hearts, and granting to them the power to fulfill it. Imagine how wonderful that must be to be able to live your life according to the law of God. That's what could happen with Adam and Eve. Paragraph 3. Besides the law written in their heart, okay, right away, that, par- um, uh, that phrase tells us something. There's a plus. There's an added. There's a positive here. Besides the law written in their hearts, the law that was written on their hearts, they knew, they understood, they were able to keep it. Besides the law that was written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now, what do we have here between these two paragraphs? Well, Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 are brought together to define the image of God as knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. This is a definition of the moral law. Nehemiah Cox, one of our uh, fathers from the 17th century, put it like this. God made Adam a reasonable creature and endued him with original righteousness, which was a perfection necessary to enable him to answer the end of his creation. Eminently in this respect, he is to be created in the image of God and to be made upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29. This uprightness or rectitude of nature consisted in the perfect harmony of his soul with that law of God which he was made under and subjected to. That's a good statement, and that's exactly right. Adam was made with the law of God written on his heart so that he could love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Cox goes on, he says, 
This was an eternal law and an invariable rule of righteousness by which those things that are agreeable to the holiness and rectitude of the divine nature were required and whatever is contrary to it was prohibited. This law was only internal and subjective to Adam being communicated to him with his reasonable nature and written in his heart so that he needed no external revelation to perfect his knowledge of it. Remember I said moral law is general revelation. It's available to all because it's written on the hearts of all. Back to Cox. And therefore in the history of his creation there is no other account given of it but what is comprised in this and which is twice repeated that he was made in the image of God. The apostle teaches us this consists in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. The sum of this law was afterward given in ten words on Mount Sinai, and yet more briefly by Christ who reduced it to two great commands respecting our duty both to God and our neighbor. And this is a rule and law of righteousness, and this is as a law of rule and righteousness is in its own nature immutable and invariable as is the nature and will of God himself whose holiness is stamped on it and represented in it. You see, when Adam and Eve were created, they were not moral neuters waiting for programming. That's what the Socinians believed, that Adam and Eve were on their own and they could do as they pleased. That's not the case. They were made with the law of God written on their hearts. That was the the essence of the image of God. They bore the divine image, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They were given an internal understanding of God's law, which is the transcript of his own moral perfection. But then we come to paragraph 3. In addition to this moral law that was written on their hearts, they were given a positive law. And this makes the distinction clear. It's especially interesting that the Baptist Confession, you you know, is based on the Westminster Confession and on the Savoy Declaration from 1658. Well, in the Westminster Confession, there are only two paragraphs, not three. They combine them. The Baptists separate two and three out. And they make this distinction between moral law and positive law even clearer than it is in Westminster. Edward Stillingfleet, an Anglican theologian from the 17th century, put it like this. As to the matter of the law, the question is not of those things which are therefore commanded because they are intrinsically good as the precepts of the natural or moral law, but of those things which are therefore only good because God commands them, that is, things merely positive, whose worth and value ariseth not from the intrinsic weight of the things, but from the external impress of divinity, divine authority upon them. What is moral is moral because it's good. What is positive is good because it's commanded. Edward Hutchinson, one of the Baptists from 1675, put it this way, virtually what I just said. For as one well observes, moral laws are good and therefore commanded, but positive worship is commanded and therefore good. That's a great way to put it. Moral... Um, Moral laws are good because they're a transcript of God's righteousness, therefore they are commanded. But positive worship is commanded, therefore it is good. It's good for us to practice believer's baptism, you see, because God has commanded it to us. But it was okay for Isaiah and David and Sarah and all the rest of the Old Testament saints to be unbaptized because it wasn't a commandment for them. So in paragraph 3, God gives to Abram, I'm sorry, to Adam, an external commandment, something that is beside that which was written on the heart. And it consists in a direct command not to eat of one specific tree. That's all. Don't do this one thing. It's as if God is saying to Adam, Adam, do you love me? Show me your love for me by obeying me in this one thing. You may eat of all of the rest of the trees in the garden, 
but this one tree I keep to myself. If God had not revealed this to Adam and Eve, they would have been free to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you see. It was only because God gave that restriction to them that it was a sin for them to do so. And time permitting, as we'll see, this is an important uh, part of the formulation of the doctrine of Christian liberty. Because Christian liberty, in many ways, addresses positive laws and how positive laws function in the lives of believers. I hope that we'll have the time to be able to get there. Well, let's move on very quickly to chapter 6 of the fall of man and of the punishment of sin and of the punishment thereof. (coughs) Because in this chapter, we see this distinction again. Let me read it for you. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. You know that twice in this paragraph, we have the distinction between moral law and positive law. Look at it more closely. Moral law, although God created man upright and perfect. Now, if we're reading the confession consecutively, we're thinking about what we've already learned in chapter 4, and we're bringing what we learned in chapter 4 with us when we come to this statement. It's, It's not written in isolation, but it's written in context, and it's written in the flow of theological thought. So it's a summary. When God created man upright and perfect, it's a summary of what we just saw in chapter 4 of creation, in paragraph 2 of chapter 4. You see that. It's one of the reasons why when I, when I teach my symbolics course, I tell my students, don't approach the confession as if it's 32 discrete units that can be pulled out and read by themselves. The way that I put it is you have to read it sideways. You have to recognize that there is a sideways theology. What comes at the beginning is expanded later on, and what comes later on is an expansion of what comes at the beginning. And you have to read it back and forth in these ways. And so here in chapter 6, we have a summary of what we've already been taught in chapter 4, paragraph 2. God created man upright and perfect, that's the moral law, and gave him a righteous law, that's paragraph 3 of chapter 4, which had been, life, had been unto life had he kept it. So we have moral and we have positive right here at the beginning. But then later on in the paragraph, it speaks to us about the fact that Adam did willfully transgress the law of their creation. The law of their creation is the moral law that is written on the heart and the command that is given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit. They violated both because the command to eat the forbidden fruit is in some ways based in the moral law. It's a demonstration of love for God. When Adam took from that fruit and ate of it, he violated not just the positive commandment, but the moral law as well. Because he said, I will choose this fruit. I will choose my desire to eat this fruit. I will listen to the voice of the serpent. I will choose my wife before I choose you, God. I love them more than I love you. That's that's essentially what happened, you see. But in both cases here, we have the moral law and the positive law laid out for us. Now, one of the things that I love best about this uh, dark, dark, dark chapter is how it ends how paragraph 3 
concludes. Listen to this. They being the rude and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature of children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. If it stopped there, it would be black darkness. Because it's true of us. All of those terrible things are true of us. That's what the law does. But the confession doesn't stop there. It has one more phrase, one more prepositional phrase, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Glory be to God for the gospel that saves us from sin and death and miseries, spiritual and temporal. The gospel alone does that. We have to move on. My time is running away. I had originally intended to look at chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator and consider how our Lord Jesus, in his offering of himself, in his incarnation, satisfied both the demands of the moral law and the positive law of Moses under which he was born. Uh, Paragraph 4, for example, of Chapter 8, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which they, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due us. Everything about the law that we fail to do is accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We can give thanks to God for that. In chapter 19, which our brother read to us uh, in the previous hour, we have these distinctions as well. Uh, chapter 19, 1, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart. What's that in our quiz? That's moral law, right? And a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's that? Positive law. You, you're seeing it. You, uh, I'm thankful that it, this is coming back to me because you're getting the point. Okay, That's good. You're, you're, you're getting the point. And you're beginning to see how this works its way through the confession. Now, we, there are a lot more examples But for the sake of time, we have to choose uh, certain ones. And much of the doctrine of chapter 19 is based on this distinction. Moral law, in uh, paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. That's the moral law. But then paragraph 3 comes to positive law. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, etc., etc. Now, our brother was right that the threefold division of the law is a proper theological division. I would argue that the moral law and the positive law, the positive law contains both the civil and the ceremonial. You see, those are just distinctions within the category of positive. And certainly, as our brother pointed out, and as I tried to point out from 1 Corinthians 7.19, the Bible itself makes those distinctions in the law. You see, it's very clearly taught in the Word of God. So those who say there's no division in the Bible about law, law is all the same, they're just not reading their Bibles properly. They're not seeing what the Scripture itself teaches us. Um, If I had been asked beforehand, what text would you like to have read before you preach, I would have said 1 Samuel 15, where you have the incident of Saul. Remember what uh, the prophet says to Saul? um, Now I'm going to forget it here. Uh, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, isn't sacrifice a command of the law? 
but to obey is better. In the Old Testament, and there are other places in the Old Testament where the same distinction is brought out. So in chapter 19, we have this distinction, and it helps us to understand what we are to do. We are to love God, and we are to love our neighbors. Paragraph 5, the moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator, it's an important little word there, who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Through Christ, we still must love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. We must keep the moral law, but we don't have to keep every positive law, because the positive laws of the old covenant are gone from us. We have no obligation to them any longer. We could continue reading chapter 19, but I want to get to chapter 21, because we need to talk about how this comes to us in the gospel. Chapter 21 is one of my uh, favorite chapters, if, if I can say that I have favorites. 21.1, the liberty. Do you remember in Galatians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has set you free. He, he, he won't allow them in any way, shape, or form to allow anything to impinge upon their freedom. That's what's behind the doctrine of chapter 21. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of a slavish fear, but childlike love and willing mind." all which were common also to believers under the law that is under the Mosaic Covenant, for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. And then we come to paragraph 2. I was teaching on the confession once in Asia. Someone, pardon me, asked me the question, have you memorized the confession? And I said, no, because I need to memorize scripture, not the confession. But let me suggest to you that 21.2 should be memorized. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Listen to these words. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now, this has everything to do with law. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. What's the point? Only God can make positive laws. Pastors... You who are pastors in this group, you cannot make positive laws for your people. That's the point. That's what authoritarianism is. It's imposing upon God's people religious requirements that God doesn't impose upon them. You and I can't do that. We can't say, men, come to church on Sunday in a yellow shirt or else don't come at all. That's a silly illustration. But it makes the point. I have no right as a pastor 
You have no right as a pastor to make such stipulations upon your people. Now, if Christ in the Word of God tells us that we are to do something, then we must preach that to our people. But we have no right to go beyond what Christ has said in His Holy Word. The Old Covenant positive laws are gone, and this is why Paul is so adamant about standing firm in our freedom, because Christ has set us free. The only positive laws to which we are subject are the positive laws of the New Covenant. Now, when we come to worship in chapter 22, we have a really interesting phrase that appears. Paul's, uh, the, yeah, the confession says this, As it is the law of nature that is a moral law, as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, listen to this, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment. Now there they bring the two words together. And it's hyphenated in, uh, in the 17th century. So God, in, by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding upon all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observance, observation of the last day of the week being abolished. What's the morality of the fourth commandment? It is that time must be set aside to God. What's the positive nature that comes to the fourth commandment? It's the day and the duration. God is free to change the obligation of the day from the seventh day, which looks back to the old creation, to the first day, which looks to the new creation and the resurrection of Christ. And this is where I want to go to Hebrews 3 and 4 and go through John Owen's whole argument of the change of day, but we can't do that. But you see, it is moral. All men owe to God time. And God is free then to change the date to celebrate not the old Exodus, but the new Exodus. Not the old Israel, but the new Israel. So we have, I, I love the, the fact that they actually use the, the language of positive moral there. Now, there are other examples that we could use. For example, we could go to chapter 25 of marriage. And we could say that our doctrine of marriage is rooted in moral or natural law. It is from creation that it has been God's purpose for one man and one woman to unite to be one flesh. That's God's purpose rooted in moral law. That becomes our stand in the culture and climate in which we live. That's our defense. This is how God made the world. But we don't have time to look at that. I'll let you go and think through chapter 25. You see, it's very clear that our confessing fathers maintained this distinction between moral and positive, and we must apply it too. It helpfully reflects both the abiding moral righteousness of God and the changes that come as a result of differing historical covenants. Chapter 13 of Sanctification reminds us, The saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after in heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed to them. As we love the Lord, we seek to follow his word in all that it teaches. Now, before we conclude, I was told that I could exceed my time limit by a minute or two. Before we conclude, so I'm keeping the law here. Positive law, thank you. Yes, that's right. Very good. That, that encourages me. Yes, thank you. 
All right, I can sit down now. <laughs> Before we conclude, there's one more aspect of law and gospel that I want to mention. Listen to these wonderful words. Chapter 11 of Justification. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of, of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. One time I was preaching in Texas, and I was a bad boy. Sometimes I like to do this. Preachers like to do this. They like to be a little bit provocative. And I stood up and I announced my text in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And I read the text and I prayed and I looked up at the people and I said, I believe in salvation by works. I was told afterwards there was a young lady who was translating me into Spanish on the fly. She was so flustered, she didn't know what to do, and she didn't translate me into Spanish when I said that. But you know what? I do believe in salvation by works, wholeheartedly, the works of Jesus Christ my Lord. He kept the law on our behalf, and he imputes to us by faith his righteousness so that we may stand before, boldly approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown of Christ as our own. Glory be to God for our justification that comes to us freely through Jesus Christ. He lived a life of obedience to the moral law. He satisfied the positive law under which he was born. And he provides everything for our forgiveness and our eternal life. Glory be to God for law and gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. It is wonderful Thank you for what it reveals to us about our Savior who has loved us with an everlasting love and given himself for us, who gladly and lovingly obeyed your law in all of its details and who imputes his righteousness to us by faith. We receive it. We trust in him. We forsake all of our own righteousness. We have nothing by which we may claim our status. It's given to us by your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Because of that, because of what you have done, Lord, help us to live according to your law and love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.